I want to take you with me to a passage in John chapter 4. We'll be there in just a few moments. I'll tell you a little bit about um, my uh, experience when it comes to the world of travel because this morning we're going to be talking about Jesus and the mode of traveling. Uh, really, uh, in my earlier years, I met uh, what would become the love of my life when I was 19. I got to meet Miss Stephanie. Uh, she walked into a classroom, and I can remember when I first saw her walk across a classroom. So there's a lot of other extenuating circumstances to that. I'm never early for a class in college and I was there 15, 20 minutes early. And she walked in, and when she walked back out, I remember going, who was that? Need to find that out, you know. And there's a long story in trying to figure out what her name was and those sorts of things. I got to hang out with her a little bit. That all happened somewhere around, you know, Thanksgiving-ish. And, uh, and then there was a Christmas break coming up and finally got to meet her, hang out with her a little bit. And I can remember as she drove off of campus and was heading back home, I knew she lived in a town called Ocala, Florida that I'd never been to. And as she drove off the hill, I had one of those moments of like, you realize how you just missed an opportunity. And the opportunity was this, as she drove off and went down the hill, I realized that college break is about three and a half weeks long. And I have no idea what her phone number is or where she lives. The girl that I've just been like, whoa, who is that? And finally got to meet. She's gone for the next month. She's probably going to meet somebody else during that time frame. You know, all those things are going through my head. You know, we end up finding her, uh, you know, back then it was the uh, AOL Instant Messenger was the mode that was coming about of contact. And somehow I ended up, I think it was divine intervention, finding her uh, on that. And, and so we communicated through Christmas break. And the following Easter, I found myself waking up early in the morning on a, on a pre, uh, maybe on the Friday or so before it. And I was going to drive down and spend Easter with her family. And, and it was the first time I'd ever driven that, that long trek that I remember anyway, by myself. And so you would leave from the middle part of Alabama where I lived, Birmingham, Montgomery, turn to the south and to the east. And then you'd hit Troy and then Dothan. And I believe maybe Bainbridge and then I was at Mariana. And then you hit the forsaken stretch of road. I don't know if any of you have ever traveled down I-10. It is nothing. It is nothing but pine trees and state troopers. That's all there is. <laughs> and I remember thinking in thickets, thickets, pine trees, and state troopers. And I don't know how many miles it is, but it feels just a skosh under a million. Okay, like it's forever to finally make it over to where you can get on the interstate and go south again. And I can remember of the years that would follow after that, driving down to see Miss Stephanie when we were apart for breaks or whatever it was. When I would drive that road, I dreaded that section of road so much because all you did was just so boring. There wasn't even turns. I mean, you just slowly went up, slowly went down. Pine trees, state troopers, thickets. That's all it was. And I remember thinking to myself, like, there's got to be a way to go around this. And the problem was you could go around this, but it would take you longer. So you're left with this, like, lose-lose situation. Dreaded I-10 stretch or take me longer to get to that beautiful lady that's in Ocala. So you end up making the decision to be like, I guess I'll just suck it up and go through the horrible stretch of I-10. This morning, we're in a similar place. Now, I need to be careful here because when I start talking about Samaria, northern Florida is not Samaria. I'm only associating. It is the dreaded part of a trip, okay? In this story we're going to read is about Jesus needing to travel, and he's trying to go from Judea to Galilee, and there are two ways to go on that trek. One of them is straight through Samaria, where there's some, some cultural things going on there, 400 years worth of, of feuding, if you will, that, that uh, builds to this tension between these people groups. And you can either go through Samaria and travel through and on the road that Jesus ends up being on, or you can take a trek and go over across the river and then go back up and then come back across the river. But the problem is, if you decide to go around Samaria, instead of it taking you three days, it's going to take you somewhere between six 
or seven. So you have to make the decision of like, how, how much am I willing to spend in time to not have to go through the dreaded I-10 of Jesus' world, right? So John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word. It'll be on the screen in front of you, as well as in your text there. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming down here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband. Have him and bring him back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, the one called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. God, we come before you this morning reading a lengthy story that in all reality is still just a small picture of what all takes place within the greater context of this woman's life. Yet this morning it is as Jesus is traveling to go somewhere else that He encounters this woman. And it is this morning on our journey of life that we encounter the story. God, would You speak to us? Would You guide us through this? Maybe sharpening us and maybe helping Helping us to know you a bit better. This is your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the immature psychological defenses that you see take place in the world around you, and likely that you even participate in from time to time, could be summed up in saying this phrase, I split you. I decide to split you all. Uh, now, the splitting is done in kind of a, a grouping of sorts. Uh, it's one that we, when we study like the development of people and, and, and how we do things, we oftentimes do things that are methods for us to keep ourselves safe. Uh, they're methods to keep ourselves guarded or to keep ourselves from maybe being hurt by certain people. And it's, it's a way that we sometimes use splitting people as a way to uh, give ourselves a bit of control in a situation. Because if we split people, now, now what I mean by splitting, I don't mean by one person in half. What I mean is when we see someone, it takes us a short amount of time in getting to know them to determine which side of the coin we see them in our life. We split them either as they are good for our life or they are bad for our life. And the ability to, to kind of split and divide them makes ourselves a little bit more guarded and, and keeps us from running the risk of being hurt. Because if we decide that you are unhealthy or not good for me, then I can keep you over on that side of, the, of, the, of my brain and, and kind of dismiss anything from you. And then if I decide that you are 
good. Now, the reality is if you decide that people are good, but then later on you learn that maybe they're not as good as you thought they were, then at any point you can mentally make a decision, no, no, they're, they're the other side. And so splitting is something that we do that guards us and really helps us. It, it helps us in such a way, I'm not saying necessarily in a, in a good way, but it, it helps us because it is a body's and a, a mind's natural defense to keep from getting hurt, that we keep people that are of risk and that are unhealthy, we keep them at a, at a, a healthy distance and we keep them kind of off to the side. My, my concern in this is, is that, you know, the, the, the Christians that we are working to be continue to work in this very immature, primitive way of thinking. We continue to operate where there are people who are good in our world and there are people who are bad in our world. And if we're not careful, we so ostracize ourselves from the people that are bad, even in a protection mode for ourselves, that it is impossible for us to be Christ-like because we have split so many people. You understand? It's impossible to be Christ-like if you continue to split people in the nature of, well, Samaritans in this case, or good and bad. I mean, the reality that we need to talk about, number one, when Jesus starts looking at this way is like, we need to be called to a, a mature Christian place to where we no longer split people just based in how we've seen them, what we've known about them. I mean, in this story, Jesus knows a great deal about her, about her past and her words were everything that she did, everything that she'd been a part of. Jesus knew all those things. And instead of splitting her and keeping her off to the side, how does Jesus handle her? He interacts. You understand like one of the things that we struggle with sometimes is defining what does what does bad look like? And is, is are people are people bad? Or as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is it the things that have a hold of their lives that are the bad things, yet the people are not actually bad? Does that make sense? Like sometimes we lump people off because of that. It's a protection mode. If we, if we recognize you and we're splitting people and we're going to do this, this unhealthy and this very immature way of operating where we just lump people all off over here, if we do that, then we protect ourselves from being hurt by them. But that is absolutely not Christ-like because Christ sees the people who are deemed unhealthy or not good or whatever that may be. And he sees the good and the potential of what they could be. He sees them for what's going on. They're like, evil has had a hold or, or, or bad has had a, a, a grip in this person's life in such a way that, but it doesn't mean that this person is inerrantly and condemned forever. Understand like, so in our minds, sometimes we are so uh, accustomed to, as, as a matter of fact, it's not just we're accustomed to, we're encouraged to without speaking out loud, but think in your mind, what are the people groups that you have seen demonized throughout the last 10 to 15 years? Not out loud, but think with me for just a moment. What are the people groups we've seen demonized? We've seen ethnicities demonized. We've seen political parties demonized. We've seen um, uh, preferences demonized. We've seen parts of the world or like where people have grown up. And we, we do these things in such a way, maybe even unintentionally, because, because we're still basing like we need to protect ourselves to keep those people from hurting us or those people from influencing us. And so we build this barrier. And I, and I need you to see, before we ever really even talk about this woman, Jesus is walking into a, a situation or finds himself, better yet, in a situation with an encounter with someone who has absolutely seen, if you're splitting people, she's absolutely seen as that outcast and that person that shouldn't be associated with. And yet Jesus is willing to sit and have this conversation, right? He's, he's willing to sit and be in there. He's no longer going to be the one who splits people. So number one in our, our kind of discussion here about looking back this story is, let's work to be people who don't split people so easily. You know, that don't lump people off. This person is bad. This person is good. No, like these are people and some of them have allowed good to work in their lives more than others, but yet there's still the potential for good in the ones that we've split off to this other side. You see this woman who comes to the well, it's an interesting location for where she is, interesting story for where she is. You need to put yourself in the mindset. Sometimes when I've read this story in the past, 
I've, I've looked at this and thought like Jesus was maybe sitting on the, maybe the, the edge of town. Maybe Jesus is sitting there kind of, you know, around other things. And, and like you kind of develop this picture in your mind of, of what it looks like. And when we read about her, she's, she's coming to draw water from a place that's known as Jacob's well. And, and you read about this, about it being passed down. Go back in the Old Testament. You read about Jacob being the one who acquires this land, digs the well, passes it down to Joseph. If you remember that part of the story, uh, Joseph ends up dying later on and asking to be buried back at this well. Like You're looking at a place that has been at the core of the people of God for, for generations and generations. It, we talk about this being near the town of Sikar if you remember that part of the story kind of relating where it was. One of the interesting things is this isn't like in the town. When, when, so have this in your mind, right? When Jesus is sitting here, he sent his disciples into town. He's not in town. He's in the outskirts, not even in the... When I think of outskirts, I think of suburbia. You understand? Like I think of the edge of town. Jesus is a half a mile from Sakar. We're talking a, a decent walk to be able to get back out to where Jesus is. He's not like sitting on the, the edge of town, and yet he's interacting with this woman who is choosing to be back in at this well. What is more intriguing to me, because we've heard the story before, some of you have heard it told that you know she's out here during the uh, middle of the day, and the fact that she's there during the heat of the day says something about her. It says that she doesn't really want to be around people, because people who were drawing water for their needs for the day would be drawing in the cool of the morning or maybe even the evening, but typically in the cool of the morning. It would be one of the first chores to be done. They would go out and get water. And so you would read about this woman and say, well, number one, if she's drawing water during the middle and the heat of the day, she absolutely doesn't want to be around people. I mean, she, she doesn't want to travel with everyone else. Another thing that should be stated in this as well is if she's traveling by herself and giving up the security of traveling in a larger group, think with me about the length and the steps she's willing to take to not be around other people. This woman is traveling not in a group of other women where we know there is protection in groups. She's also traveling likely from Sakar, even though it never says she lives in Sakar, but if she's coming from the town, and this is the closest town reference, she's traveling a half a mile or better to come outside of the, the, the official town to be able to be at this well to be able to draw water. She's doing so during the heat of the day, and she's doing so without the protection of other women around her. This woman has absolutely ostracized herself. She's choosing to be away from everyone else because she flat out just doesn't want to be around those people. And you start asking the question of like, why does she not want to be around those people? How many of you relate in the reality? Like, you're not really big on large crowds. Chuck Arnold attends our third service. In the process of building a house and even projects in general, I pass Chuck Arnold in the mornings a good bit. Anybody have any idea what time Chuck gets to his office up here in Tennessee Ridge? About 5.30, 5.15. So if you pass Chuck Arnold on the road on his way to work, you are out and about early. You know what I mean? Like it's an early morning. Now some of you are like, preacher, I wake up at three o'clock. Yep, you're beautifully weird, okay? Not everybody does that, all right? So most people wake up sometime around the sun coming up, those sorts of things, they move on. I'm not saying it's wrong of you. I'm just saying you're a whole lot different, okay? I am different enough to be waking up in that 4.30 range, leaving at five o'clock range. And why in the world would I be leaving at five o'clock? Because I want to make it to Lowe's when they open. I want to be there waiting on the doors to open. Matter of fact, I saw bump us there just this past week. He'll vouch for me early, early. I want to be there, right? And so when I get there early, early in the morning, if you're going to be at Lowe's from where we live, you need to leave at about five o'clock in the morning, maybe leave at 5.15, which means I've already got up, had the cup of coffee, got things ready to go. This time of year, maybe even got the fire going in the, uh, in the wood burner and off I go. That's when I normally pass Chuck Arnold early in the mornings. So as I'm driving up there, Chuck has called me before and he's like, man, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to Lowe's. And he said, this early? I said, absolutely. He goes, you're a smart man. Why are you a smart man going to Lowe's at six o'clock in the morning? 
nobody's there. It is wonderful. You know what I mean? Like, go in, get the things. It's just easy to get all the things done. And like, there's a part of me that like, I understand and I identify with, you know, I don't necessarily want to be at Lowe's on Saturday at 10 a.m. when everybody's going to pick their new paint color. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be there during that part of the day. Now, my reason for not being there is not because of this woman's reason. I understand in some ways, like, I don't exactly enjoy that large, crowded atmosphere of a, of a Lowe's or a home improvement store. This woman, in a very similar way, is working diligently to not be there. And so she's willing to pay the price that she will go during the middle of the day when things are left safe, uh, left unsafe, in the same way that I'm willing to pay the price to get up at 4.30 so that I don't have to deal with people at Lowe's. Like, you make that decision to not, if I'm going to isolate, and it's going to cost me this, and it's worth what it's going to cost me to be able to isolate and be at that in, the, in that setting by myself and not around other people. Now, her reason for being there, though, there's another thing that adds to this, and I didn't plug this in until I was many years later on hearing the story and, and reading the story. You know, it's not just odd that she's going to, the, to get water during the middle of the day, during the heat of the day, when no one else was going. You know, Sakar has its own water source, has its own water source. This woman is so bent on not being around people. She's walking outside of a town she doesn't even have to leave to go get water. I mean, like, you want an exclamation point on how much this woman don't want to be around people. She doesn't have to go to this well to get water because there's water in town. And yet she's choosing, even during the heat of the day, that much to stay away from everybody else, to be able to go here. Like, this woman is absolutely calloused. Have you ever wondered this conversation she has with Jesus, when he speaks to her, her response is, and I'll try to say it non with the least amount of, 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 of trying to lead you and how I, how I stress words or, or anything else. I try to just read it blank. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? You ever wondered the inflection that comes with that? We can't look at her eyes and see, because you and I know it is in reading body language and looking at someone's eyes that you can read better their intent. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? Is she asking that out of genuine concern? Or have you considered that this woman is absolutely calloused and is working so hard? hard to stay away from people that when she gets there, there's this Jew that wants to talk to her. She recognizes, and if you don't recognize these societal norms, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jews look down on Samaritans as being lesser people, as a lesser society, as a lesser ethnicity. It's the way that this system has been working for several hundred years at this point in the ballgame. So when she says this to him, or is she looking back at him as a calloused and bitter woman? Who are you talking to me? I don't want to hear from you. Understand? And I'm not here to tell you this morning that definitively one or the other, but I'm just saying open your eyes a bit to put yourself in this woman's shoes and see the lengths that she's willing to go to stay away from people. And when this Jew starts talking to her, her response is, why are you talking to me? Her response is, you shouldn't be talking to me. Her response is that she's worked diligently to not have to talk to you. And yet here you are intruding on her isolative work to try and not make this happen. Folks, this is such a strict understanding of the rules of how they're supposed to stay away from each other. There's a group I, with a sense of irony, Jesus is running from the Pharisees in this or, or leaving to keep from having a problem with him. Remember, he's leaving to go back to Galilee to stay away from the Pharisees who were mad at him uh, because he was baptizing more than John the Baptist. If you remember that part of the story. So like he's going that direction. She's, she's spouting back off at him because she knows how the teachers, the rabbis, the people who represent, she knows the, the distances here. As a matter of fact, those same Pharisees, there's a group of them that came a bit of a, somewhat of a joke, but they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Interesting to me, they would be called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. You don't know why? Because they were so committed to not, because in their world they were not to look upon a woman and definitely not a Samaritan woman. And so when a woman was going to pass them in the street or a woman was going to pass them on the trail, they would close their eyes because they were so holy. You putting this together? Why, why they're called bruised and bloody? 
some of us can't walk straight in general. And some of us are, we are testing our lives by looking at a cell phone while walking. These people would close their eyes and the reason they're called bruised and bleeding is because they would walk into buildings and trees. Like they were that bent on trying to be holy because they didn't want to look at somebody who was passing them. Like to me, folks, get in your mind, it is that deep of a, of a root that we're reading about here. And Jesus says to her, Go get your husband. We read this story. She's, she's risked all of this, and now she's here with this individual. And he says something to her about going to get her husband, and she, she tries to dismiss him and pass him off as, I don't have a husband. And his response to her, can you imagine the look on her face? She says, you're right. He says, you're right. You've had five. And the woman or the man you are with now, not even your husband. What an awkward moment. Trying to dismiss him, trying, trying to not be around people in the first place. And this guy has the audacity to know who she is and even speak those things. I want to go back for just a moment here and, re, and, and remind you of how we work so well at splitting people. If we were going to split people this morning, do not be so naive to think that the woman at the well is not someone we would split back over here into this category of what is wrong with the world today. What is wrong wrong with the morals and ethics of this world and why we are going down this horrible path when people talk about the things happening in the world around them and they see this taking place. This is the woman who is the picture who has been married five times and now she's living with somebody who's not even her husband. You get this all in your mind and like you start putting them in that picture of who they are. I need to first recognize this and say that one of the men in my life that I admire so greatly, the first time he ever met my aunt, he watched her walk across a parking lot and told his work buddies there goes my sixth wife. This story hits me. Because a man I look up to today, if we were splitting hairs at one point in his life, is absolutely in this bucket of we've split them and thrown them off into the unhealthy and the bad and the sinful. Some of you this morning, you sit in this auditorium and even though evil would convince you that you were in the bad, the unhealthy, and that's who you are, or maybe maybe you already recognize it's who you were, but some of you, let's, let's be real enough to know that some of you are living in such a way and there are things in your lives that you still associate with the bad and the unhealthy for yourself, that you would see yourself as being split. You have seen yourself and, and recognize yourself to be calloused. Recognize yourself to be isolative because of the, the interaction and, and the things that you've done, the things you've been a part of. And I need you so desperately this morning to hear, no matter how hard you have worked to be calloused and isolative, Jesus wants to sit with you. The Savior of the world, the one who put this world together, wants to sit with you. As much as you have worked to isolate yourself or to ostracize yourself or to keep yourself protected on an island because this splitting process I talked about, like let's open. It's not just what we do to each other. It is what we do to ourselves. Amen. We put ourselves in these buckets and we see ourselves in this place. And I need you this morning. If you have been the one splitting or the one who has split yourself, I need you this morning to hear Jesus intentionally sits at this quite literal fork in the road with a place to draw water with a woman who is so bent on seeing herself and through these lenses that she doesn't even get water from her town. She comes out to this other place to stay away from people. Jesus works that diligently and has that kind of desire to see with that person. And this morning, if you are that person, I need to tell you, Jesus still wants to have a relationship with you. I need to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done or how badly or poorly you think of yourself or how hard you are working to stay away from other people. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Maybe this morning, those of you who have made horrible mistakes because of the ways that we think about a person who has had five husbands and is living with someone who's not her husband, the way we think about those things, if you've lumped yourself into that, I need you to hear that Jesus wants to sit with you. I've preached this story numerous times. I've taught it to teenagers. I've worked through it with adults. We've spent time dissecting it. You likely have heard people preach this sermon before. And this morning, I want in the last few minutes of our time together to rock your boat a little bit in how you viewed this story. Maybe she was sinful. What if she wasn't? Maybe she still split. Don't get me wrong. 
Still split. But what if this had nothing to do with her choices? You're a preacher. She had five husbands. Like, she's living with a dude that's not even her husband right now. Like, clearly, this is a woman of ill repute. You know, like, clearly. No, 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 no. Entertain with me for one other moment. Luke chapter 20. I'll read the story to you because it's coming from Sadducees who were very similar to Pharisees. We talked about them a couple of weeks ago. They're asking Jesus a question and they're trying to get him caught up in a, in a, in a, in a conundrum of sorts. But what they're asking him about references back to the Mosaic law that they're living by and it should shed light into our world of how we may view this woman. Luke 20, chapter 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Hear this question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second one and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Since there were seven that she was married to. Forget the question that they're trying to trip Jesus in. What if this woman by no decision or fault of her own was married to a man who died and was handed off to a brother who died and was handed off and was handed off and was handed off. What if this woman was married to a man who died and was handed off to a brother who would not take her in because she was childless and could not bear a child? And in those days, folks, you think you think today's not inability to bear children is a, is a burdensome task. I'm not taking away from the, from the torment, but I am saying in this context, in the situation she's in, it is hard for a woman to find worth when they can bear no children, especially a son. And it, and that's, that's in a greater level of the natural desiring, okay? Like, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying there's more things at stake than just the desire to have a child, which is huge, okay? I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I'm just saying there are more things on the table when unable to have, have children in her situation. What if she's not able to have children and she's been passed from brother to brother to brother to the point that no one wants to keep her own anymore, no one wants to continue to feed her because she can't produce, and now she's found herself in another house, not even her family, but somebody has finally taken her in. Let me ask you for just one second. Is it that this woman has lived in sin her entire life and has made her own mess and Jesus wants to sit with her? Or is it that this woman has been endured things she cannot control? She has been let go and dismissed and not loved by everyone to the point that she is so calloused and does not want to be around humanity anymore and is simply trying to survive. And Jesus recognizes and says, I see you. You chose nothing. You did not choose this horrible situation that you're in. And I need you to know I am the one who came to save. I am the one who wants to sit here at this well with you and remind you of the love of the Heavenly Father. This morning, it matters not to me whether you associate maybe in your own life with a woman who is sinful and is in these, these, this predicament because of the decisions she's made or a woman who has been the recipient of a very unfortunate and horrible set of circumstances who has thus ostracized herself. It doesn't matter to me the reason for ostracizing and isolating. I, I do want to challenge you that maybe the way we've read this story might not be entirely accurate but I would tell you whether you look at this story from a woman who has been promiscuous and all those sorts of things and adulterous and whatever, or you look at a woman who's been the victim of a horrible life circumstance, regardless, I need you to hear this morning, Jesus wants to sit with you. He wants to do life with you. He wants to look you in the eyes and tell you that he has come to save the world and that world includes you. This morning, no matter how you may see yourself, I, I hope earlier on you
you learn the lesson not to see other people and put them in this. But for ourselves, no matter how you may see yourself fitting into the story of the woman at the well, I need to remind you that Jesus wants a relationship with you. God, we come before you this morning, some of us walking into this room, and we recognize the tendencies in ourselves to be very calloused and to be very isolative. And we recognize that, God, it may be a protective mode for us, but it is not necessarily a healthy mode for us. God, sometimes we ostracize and isolate ourselves. Sometimes it's because of the mistakes we've made, and it's because of the things that we've done, and it's because those things have led us to be very calloused people. God, yet sometimes it is because of the circumstances around us that we did not choose, that we have found ourselves on the losing end of the deal, that the, that the hand that life dealt us was not a good one. And so, God, because of our need to try and protect ourselves, we very much recognize and relate to being isolated. God, we pray this morning that no matter how we may see ourselves, no matter how we may view this woman, regardless through which set of lenses, the fact remains, Jesus wants to sit at the well and offer eternal life. He wants to offer water. It will bring us to a place of never having that sort of thirst again. God, for that reason, we give you praise this morning. God, it's my prayer this morning that those who may have dealt with that calloused heart and isolative nature, that they would find themselves very similarly in this story, being freed from that bondage and able to go back into this life and respond as she did. God, we love you today. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.